es un asunto en el que la sociedad civil siempre ha jugado un papel fundamental. La sociedad civil. Civil society. The Grassroots View, an EESC podcast. Welcome back to The Grassroots View, the podcast of the European Economic and Social Committee. Every year, negotiators from the state signatories of the Paris Climate Agreement gather for what's known as the COP, the Conference of the Parties. This year, COP28 in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates will be the focus of global discussions on progress towards tackling the urgent issue of global warming. The European Union, as a world leader on climate action, will be present across the debates and deals being done to drive the world towards a cleaner, greener future. Indeed, working towards a net-zero carbon Europe by 2050 is the core of the European Union's policy framework, and it's something that affects us all, every day, and increasingly. The EESC will be represented at COP28 by a delegation led by the institution's president, Oliver Rupka, and we'll hear more about the work they've done in the lead-up to COP a bit later. Joining me to discuss this pivotal and widely watched event are climate journalist Anna Gumbau, EESC youth delegate to COP28, Deandra Nivukula, and therefore a member of that delegation I mentioned, CEO of Sustainable Public Affairs, Willem Friesendor, and Jule Konecker from the German Institute for International and Security Affairs. First, Anna, from a journalist's viewpoint, let's talk about the venue. It's caused some raised eyebrows, to say the least, hasn't it? The way that the venues of COP are chosen is that it has to be geographically distributed and every year a different region is selected for it. And this year, the United Arab Emirates applied and it's going to be in, in Dubai, which, I mean, of course, is a country with a strong fossil fuel industry and, and tradition. And I mean, of course, from this point of view, it was a controversial choice from the very beginning. Not only that, but also the fact that the president of the COP28 this year is the uh, The head is the CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, adding much more pressure into it and also highlighting the, the potential, the likely conflicts of interest that, that the president is going to, to have to, to address in order to reach uh, an ambitious climate deal. We often hear about the concept of greenwashing in connection with the COP, the idea that journalists can be manipulated by oil and gas companies and others that simply want to create a false impression of their environmental credentials. What do you make of that? There's always the danger that, indeed, that media are being instrumentalized or being sold a story or a certain angle that, you know, sounds very nice and very shiny on paper. But then, of course, if you dig deeper, you realize that either this is completely obvious or this is really not, not the case. For a reporter that is perhaps not as experienced or doesn't have such a depth of knowledge on the topic, certain information can be easily used to, to manipulate. So this is why I think it's so important for reporters to have, you know, a certain degree of climate literacy and, and scientific literacy as well, be able to cover COPs. And do you think that climate literacy, that scientific literacy is growing in the media? I think if we see in both national and international media, we are seeing that more prominently the role of a specialized correspondent, of a journalist specialized in energy or, or climate action, which enormously helps in terms of avoiding being used for purely greenwashing purposes. But it's true that if your reporter is not experienced or doesn't have the necessary background knowledge to be able to cover these conferences, to understand, you know, what it what do we mean by by carbon accounting? 
why do we mean by historical responsibilities at COPs? What do we mean by, you know, scope one, two, three emissions when we talk about companies? And then it's much more difficult, I think, to be able to provide an accurate picture on these topics. And this is where really there's a lot of nuance uh, on the way we cover climate for sure. Tell me about how you see the way the EU institutions have prepared for this COP. The role of the EU is going to be very important, first of all, in the case of the loss and damage fund. The EU is inevitably going to be one of the main donors because it's the region which has had among the most historical responsibility in terms of global and historical greenhouse gas emissions. So this is going to be an important role that the EU is going to have to gather the necessary agreements and support from other countries and from other regions to get to that deal. So I think the EU is going to have an, an important role in terms of stepping up this global ambition and to persuade other countries to advance their their climate plans and to make higher pledges, but also to broker the necessary agreements to really uh, leave Dubai with a solid deal on all those topics that are going to be key. Finally, Anna, what's your view on whether journalists will be able to cover COP freely, given the venue, given the sensitivities? It's not only a matter of journalists having the freedom to, to cover COP28, but I think there's a very important role really What the role of climate activists that are going to travel to Dubai is going to be like, the fact that they need to have freedom to protest across the venue and across the city, to raise awareness on on climate-related topics, the fact that they need to be able to express themselves freely and without any kind of surveillance. And I think it's very important to highlight the importance of that civil society are going to have in COP and that they've always had in terms of the climate movement, because if right now we're talking about the European Green Deal. The European Green Deal cannot be understood without the role of civil society, really, and how climate activists, especially the younger generations, have been pushing for more ambitious climate action. Anna Gumbau, thanks very much for your contribution. And talking of civil society and younger generations, my next guest is the EESC's youth delegate to COP28, Deandra Nivukula, from Ireland, part of a delegation of eight EESC members who'll be in Dubai, including the president, Oliver Rucka, and that delegation is itself part of the EU delegation. Deandra, welcome. Do you think the voices of young people figure enough in debates about the climate? It is my opinion that they are not being listened to adequately, that we're not taken into consideration and we're not truly being seen as key stakeholders by decision makers or by policymakers when it comes to climate change. Young people have been screaming at the top of their lungs for years now and they've been fighting with all their might for the urgency that we recognise to also be recognised by those with the power to actually phase out and eradicate the use of fossil fuels. Lots of it has fallen on deaf ears. And I say that while knowing that the majority of climate action taken, especially in recent history, is because of the pressure that young people put on politicians. Give us an example of that pressure, that activism that's really inspired you. I think there's definitely power in community. And I think that the climate movement that we have seen, especially, say, in the last five to ten years, It really was individuals coming together and building something from the ground up. I think that there is so much power in that. And there's something that I also wanted to mention um, that I have learned specifically from about from young people in Ireland, but it is something that is global at the moment. 
And I suppose it's one of my main hopes as well for COP28, even though it is probably and unfortunately very far-fetched because of the influence of fossil fuel lobbyists. But it is the negotiation or at least discussion of a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. Tell me a bit more about it. What would it mean in reality? This is something that I have been learning about for the past few months. And what I love the most about it is is that it's a proposal that originated from the Pacific Islands, from least developed countries, and from civil society. And today there are eight nations who have supported the proposal, along with 2,234 civil society organizations, 95 cities and subnational governments, and an astonishing 623,178 individuals, which is just an insane amount of people power. And we see what that power can do, bringing in cities and subnational governments, bringing in nation states. The proposal is essentially for the negotiation of a treaty that would build on the framework provided in the Paris Agreement. And it would mean stopping the development of new fossil fuels, beginning an equitable phase out of fossil fuels and ultimately achieving a just transition that is global, um, which actually ensures that nobody is left behind. Now, you'll be part of the EESC delegation to the COP. What preparatory work has the institution undertaken ahead of the conference? We have two position papers, which are going to form the basis of our advocacy on the ground in Dubai, and which we presented to the European Commission for consideration in their negotiations. The first focuses on agriculture and food security. And with that, we're really honing in on food systems transformation, recognizing the impact of climate change on food systems, and also addressing the urgent need to include those in the agri-food sector in combating global warming so that we can achieve a just transition that has long-term objectives and which is equitable and profitable for everyone involved. And the second paper? The second position paper addresses the Just Transition Work Programme. And here we really wanted to build on the momentum of the Sharm el-Sheikh implementation plan, which was a significant advancement in operationalizing a just transition. We really highlight the need to address the social dimension of a just transition. How do we act in the fairest manner through capacity building and other measures? And we're also really pushing for a rights-based approach to the Just Transition Work Programme because justice is delivered through rights. And this approach can help us immensely in transitioning towards environmentally sustainable economies and societies. Thanks, Deandra Nivokola. Flying the flag for young people, civil society and the EESC at the COP with passion and commitment. The Grassroots View, an EESC podcast. Now, my next guest is the chief executive of Sustainable Public Affairs, a Brussels-based company which is, and does, exactly what its name suggests. Willem Vriesendorp, welcome. Tell me, with climate action figuring so prominently in the sustainability debate, what are the values that drive your business? Climate action. That's very important. It's very important to us. You can do climate action from different perspectives. We do that from the perspective of public affairs. We see ourselves as an uh, accelerator for uh, the um, sustainable frontrunners. It is oftentimes the legislator and regulator that determines which business cases are bankable and which are not. And we're trying to uh, make the performance of sustainable frontrunners the norm for the rest of the industry so that it becomes more bankable to be a sustainable frontrunner because the regulator actually ties the regulation towards your performance. So businesses setting the pace ahead of regulators, but not just oil and gas businesses, right? Every business has a role to play. 
if you have an innovation or an R&D pipeline that sets sustainability forward, that helps you to perform better than the regulation requires you to do, it can be good business to be climate friendly, to be sustainable. And I think that if people understand or come to the realization that there's a new market out there where climate innovations need to become bankable also uh, uh, with the help of, of governments and regulators, I think that 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 connotation is very important for, for this COP. But we also see it optimistically as, as a potential for the, 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 the great minds that we have that are working on climate solutions that need to bring to market. Earlier, Anna was talking about the COP being held in one of the world's fossil fuel superpowers. How do you see that from a public affairs perspective? Yeah, I think it's a question that's on everyone's mind. I think it's incredibly important that we have the COP, that we have people that come together to try and solve uh, these issues. I think it's incredibly important for democracy. It's a good democratic process. So all that's positive. And the fact that, uh, that Dubai is hosting this is also positive. But it underlines that we need to do everything which we can do to make it happen. Because ultimately, Dubai is only the convener, right? And the broker to get a deal with the majority is it's still a very democratic process, which is possible. So it's also a call to us, and maybe it's a nice bridge also to the EESC, to play a, a more significant role in the run-up to COP, at the COP itself, etc. Well, the climate crisis has important economic and social dimensions, which our institution is perhaps uniquely placed to reconcile. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the EEC plays a very important role and can punch even further above its weight. Uh, I think the opinions that it issues are very helpful. What I also think is that we are increasingly approaching uh, environmental issues from a social societal perspective. And there, I think the EEC has a significant role to play. We want to make sure that the legislation that comes out is inclusive and, and, and is proportionate for, for the men in the street. But on the other side, I think that we need to make sure that the EEC helps us to push for more climate ambition because it's ultimately, it's a social issue. Finally, Willem, what are you hoping to see come out of this COP? I think that the most important thing is to get a clear set of concrete actions to phase out fossil fuels, including an immediate end to new coal power plants. The EU will be pushing for a world-first deal to phase out the unabated global use of coal, oil and gas, I think is extremely positive. And I hope that it will be successful in that, because I think that is the most important thing, right? And of course, the other Two things are uh, an agreement on uh, loss and damage. And yeah, the, the broader shoulders need to carry more of the load. And the third thing is uh, reformation of the global financial system. I think we need to try and very quickly put a price on environmental externalities, um, make it uh, very uh, hard slash impossible to finance new projects. Willem Friesendorp from Sustainable Public Affairs. Thanks to you. My final guest is Jule Kunnecke from the German Institute for International and Security Affairs, who's here to give a broader perspective on some of the geopolitical issues facing the COP. Jule, first, is enough attention being given to the security dimension of climate policy? I would say that's definitely not the case for us here in Europe. Um, we are still in a situation where the assumption is um, still way too often it's the global south that's suffering from climate impacts, but for us here in Europe, that's still a distant and somewhat blurry future. And of course, 
countries and populations in the global south are suffering more severely from the impacts of climate change, uh, most of which have been caused by industrialized countries. But here in the EU, we are also already feeling the impacts quite heavily. I mean, we still keep breaking temperature records um, and 2023 is on track to um, become the hottest year on record. So no, I would say we do not pay enough attention to the security dimension of climate change. How would you characterize EU climate diplomacy in the run-up to COP28? I think first it's important to say that member states negotiate as one bloc, which means they have to agree on the positions and strategy for COP before the summit, which can be quite challenging sometimes with uh, 27 member states, right? And the conclusions on the EU's general negotiation positions are then approved by the Council, normally around two months ahead of the conference. And they are also made publicly available, which is interesting because other parties don't do that. When it comes to climate diplomacy, I think it's fair to say that the EU has positioned itself as a leader. It has very strong domestic targets with the European Green Deal, and it's also the world's largest climate finance contributor. So the EU's contributions and positioning at the negotiations can really make a difference. But I would say that Europe also struggles to maintain this position as a global leader, But the EU has made major commitments to reduce emissions as a way to lead others towards the same goal, right? Emissions are going down, yes, but we are still off track to meeting our climate targets. So we really need a faster rate of reduction and we have to significantly step up implementation to meet the 2030 target and net zero by 2050. And of course, we also have to act as a reliable partner. And when looking at this COP um, in Dubai, We've seen some positive signals from the EU. For example, the EU's um, new climate commissioner, Robke Höxtra, um, has promised a substantial financial contribution to the loss and damage fund, which was agreed at last year's COP and was really a kind of breakthrough. And the EU has done quite a lot of diplomatic outreach to, to get countries to commit to targets to triple the world's global renewable energy capacity and double energy efficiency by 2030. How satisfied are you that civil society organisations are enabled to be fully engaged in this year's COP? That was already a quite problematic um, issue at last year's COP in in Egypt, in Shamal Sheikh, and really needs to be seen on the ground, I think. So far, the UAE has not missed an opportunity to emphasise that inclusivity and civil society engagement are crucial to the success of COP. And they promised that climate activists will be allowed to protest peacefully at the conference in Dubai. But many civil society actors, of course, are skeptical, rightly so, I think. And we've seen NGOs such as Human Rights Watch warning that the UAE's restrictions on freedom of assembly and repression of critics could prevent meaningful participation by activists and civil society in the negotiations. Finally, Yula, as you know, the EESC represents employers and employees groups. How do you see their role in shaping climate policy globally? I think they're absolutely crucial actors. So trade unions can and have also been engaged with climate policies at various levels, in particular at national and industry level, where they can really implement climate protection on the ground. And it's clear that the transition is already underway be it in the energy or in the transport sector, and trade unions and employers group can really help to ensure that this transition is just, meaning that it is implemented fairly and that no one is left behind. Thanks, Jule, for your insight from the German Institute for International and Security Affairs in Berlin. And thanks also to my other guests, Willem Vriesendorp from Sustainable Public Affairs, 
EESC Youth Delegate to COP28, Diandra Nivokola, and climate journalist Anna Gumbau. The world will be watching what happens in Dubai, and expectations are high, not least among the EESC delegation. That's all for this podcast, but we'll be back soon when we'll bring you more news and information from the EESC with the Grassroots View.